Lord, may now the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight, for you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, today we're in the final week of our series on 1 Thessalonians. We started this five weeks ago. The title was called Like a Rock. It's really all about how to develop a depth of Christian character as people who profess to be believers How do we act? How do we interact into today's world? Now, today we come to chapter 5, and Paul begins this chapter by introducing a topic that he has mentioned several times in these five chapters of this very short book, but he's introducing a topic that I have yet to say anything about. But I want to just say a little bit about it to begin with. And I want to talk about the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ. Now understand that in the days that Paul wrote this letter, uh, the believers thought that Jesus was going to come back. And most of them believed that he was going to come back in their lifetime. That even though he would have died, maybe say in the year 33, 34, they thought that before the end of that century, he would come back to judge the world. Now, Paul, as a result, spoke a lot about that in 1 Thessalonians, but he never, ever pinpoints when this would take place. In fact, if you have your Bibles in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the first two verses, he says, Now, brothers, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, that just merely echoes what Jesus had already said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, he said, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, I've always been intrigued by that. It said, Nobody knows when Jesus is coming back. In fact, Jesus doesn't know. Now, if Jesus doesn't know, why do we continue to try to figure out when that's going to come? What I find is absolutely amazing. In spite of this, there have always been people who've tried to pinpoint the exact day of the judgment. I'm going to take you back to some of the first years of my ministry. In fact, it was in 1988. In 1988, most every pastor in the country got a little book that had a title, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Must Take Place in 1988. Not could, but must take place. Now, the author, his name was Edgar Wisenant, and unless you think he was some sort of crackpot, he was a NASA scientist. So he was nobody's real fool. But Edgar Wisenant came to these 88 conclusions after years of studying all of the various prophecies that you find in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let me read to you what he says in the preface of his book. Jesus said we cannot know the hour or the day, but that doesn't mean that we can't know the year or the month or the week. And he goes on to say this is as much as we can be sure of, but there's also good reason to believe that the rapture will take place specifically on Friday morning, September the 16th, 1988. Well, when I read that, I thought, wow, they're going to do it on my birthday. (laughs) I didn't know, D, it was your birthday at that time either. Uh, But he said this is when it's going to be. It's going to be a Friday morning, September the 16th, 1988. Well, guess what? He was wrong. Did that deter good old Edgar? 
Not at all. He reran his calculations and he said, quote, I found my mistake. I was a year off. And he published a brand new book called 89 Reasons Why the Rapture Must Take Place in 1989. Obviously, he was wrong again. Now, I want to tell you, first of all, I believe in the second coming of Christ because I believe in the Bible. I also believe the Bible when it says about the times and the dates, we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, friends, all Paul is really saying to us this morning is this. It's not for us to know the hour or the day or the week or the month or the year for that matter. He said it could happen at any moment. So we should just live in such a way that we're prepared whenever it comes. Some of you may have already heard this. Martin Luther one time was asked, what would you do if you knew that tomorrow would be the end of the world? Luther's reply was, I'd plant a tree. I mean, in other words, why should I change my activities just because the world was going to end tomorrow? I'm prepared. See, being ready means that we continue to live our lives, follow our plans, keep moving forward so that when he does come back, he will find us being faithful. He would find us living lives of faith in action. Now, there are some people whose impression of Christians is that we walk through this world with eyes you know, wide shut, I guess, eyes closed, ignoring all the facts around us, walking through with our heads in the clouds. And if Christians don't have their heads in the clouds, in fact, I've heard someone say, they're so heavenly minded to be of no earthly value. It's a nice criticism of a Christian, isn't it? Or if we don't do that, we always have our heads buried in the sand. But that's not the way that Christians are called to live. That's why the Christian life needs to be lived with eyes wide open. We are not to be clueless people. We are not to be naive or gullible or easily duped. Uh, we're, we're supposed to be alert. We're supposed to be self-controlled. We're supposed to be discerning. That's the kind of person who is ready for the second coming of Jesus. This is the kind of person who's building a life of Christian character. So Paul ends then with the reading that you heard Dennis share with you before. He has a series of very rapid-fire exhortations, one after another. If you looked at that, you know, do this and this and this and this. In fact, I, I got to thinking, I could preach an entire whole new series of messages on each of those little phrases. Wouldn't it be a great one to hear the sermon on how we should kiss one another as brothers? Did you catch that one? You know, the holy kiss between the brothers? Some of you aren't looking forward to that. Well, we're not going to touch on that. I could preach on all of them for a long time, but I only want to focus on three of them this morning underneath this title of living with eyes wide open. And in order to live as sons of light and daughters of light, uh, sons and daughters of the day, we need to have our eyes wide open. There are three things then we need to focus on. Here's the first thing. We need to keep our eyes wide open to the needs of other people around us. That's why Paul said, here are some simple little things. He rattled them off pretty quick. He said, encourage one another. Now, encourage means to put the courage into somebody. You, you know somebody that's 
kind of worried about different things. Well, what we're to do as Christians is what? To put courage back in them. That's why when we did a funeral here yesterday, or the funeral I did a week ago, my hope was that I would put courage back into those people who still mourn the loss of their loved one. We're called to do that. We are told to show respect for other people. The Bible says that God is no respecter of persons. I think of the times that God has spoken to me. Now, I, I use that phrase, and some people go, what, God talks to you? Uh, yeah. Now, God talks to me sometimes through other Christian people. God speaks to me sometimes very directly through his word. And I would even be bold enough to say there are a couple of times that I kind of wonder if that was not God actually talking to me out loud. And one of the things that I remember, it just seemed like it came loud and clear to me, was, Barry, I love more people than you do. Maybe you should get with it. Something to that effect. Well, how many people does God love? He loves everybody. And I, what I heard God kind of saying to me was, you've kind of picked and chosen who you're going to love. Maybe you should broaden your arena of who it is that you should love. In fact, in other words, love everybody. He says to live in peace, you know, not be a troublemaker, stir up things. You know, help the weak, help the timid, be kind to each other. See, every time you encounter another person, you have the opportunity to practice holiness. Now, the Bible says we should be holy for the Lord our God is holy. Well, holy is not perfection, but it's becoming more and more like Christ. Think about the people that you have an opportunity to speak to in the course of the week, whether in the workplace, the marketplace, in schools, wherever. God crosses your path with a lot of people. Every one of those is an opportunity to practice holiness. Now, I know that it would... You know, anybody could maintain a sweet spirit all the time if you didn't have anybody around to annoy you or impose their time or create problems in your life. Uh, you know, that would be easy. Uh, but God has not promised us that kind of life. God puts us with all kinds of people, including some people that, I'll tell you, the best choice of words I can use for them would be heavenly sandpaper. They just plain simple rub you the wrong way. These are people that my wife knows this term. We call them EGRs, extra grace required. There are people like that. Let's, let's, let's be honest. There are people like that, that you have to go a little bit further. See, it would be easy to just ignore people like that, but that's not what life looks like for any of us. You know, there is a difference between being self-centered and other-centered. A person of character just needs to look out for the needs of other people. Now, here's the second thing. We need to keep our eyes open to what is really going on around us. Now, if, if I could encourage you to memorize one verse this week, I would encourage you to memorize that verse on the screen, verse 21 from 5th chapter of Thessalonians. Test everything, hold on to the good. Let's say that out loud together. Test everything, hold on to the good. Almost every day, I receive an email from some alarmed and concerned person about some terrible injustice that has taken place or is about to take place. 
It's almost always forwarded to me with a multitude of other email addresses, but you've got you to send this on. This is really important. You know, if this is true, we've got to let everybody know. Let me give you some examples. Uh, a few years ago, everybody was sending emails around warning everybody about how, you know, Y2K would cause a global collapse. Then we were told that 9-11 was a conspiracy. Then we send around an email that Madeleine Murray O'Hare is trying to get religious broadcasting banned from the airwaves. Then we heard that Madeleine Albright had defined all Bible-believing churches as cults and put Christians on a watch list. Then we were told that a whole bunch of scientists were actually going to clone Jesus from the DNA that they found on the Shroud of Turin. And then we hear that the government wants to charge us all a nickel for every email. And quite honestly, I wish they'd charge the people who sent me that kind of trash $100 an email. Now, again, I'm sorry, this really bugs me. But without ever checking the truth on those emails, those claims, a lot of people read those things, they get all panicked, and they forward them on to their big giant friend list. Why does this happen? I think it happens because we have a tendency to react first and think second. That is, if we ever get around to thinking. Paul says what? Test everything. Don't jump to conclusions about insufficient evidence. I can't begin to tell you how many times I've sent an email back to those people and said, this is absolutely false. Here are the facts. Could have checked them out yourself. See, if something sounds too good to be true, guess what? It probably is. I mean, wait until you know all the facts before you decide. And conversely, uh, for all the alarmists who may be here among us today, if something sounds too bad to be true, it probably is as well. You've got to kind of wait until you get all of the facts before you make up your mind, and certainly before you forward some crazy emails to everybody on your list. I'm going to add this statement. Maybe I shouldn't say it, but I will. It really makes some Christians look amazingly stupid. And we don't want to do that. You know, we ought to be out there to be the salt of the earth. John Wimber, who's the founder of the Vineyard Church, said something one time I really liked. He said, when I eat chicken, I spit out the bones. You know, I remember that every time I listen to a preacher or a politician with whom I don't fully agree. See, Paul would say here, don't let yourself to be, be so gullible. Don't let yourself get so jaded. I mean, test everything. Wait for the evidence to come in. Look at the facts. Make your conclusion based on what you actually know. Now, i got to tell you, this has a lot more to do than just how you filter your email box. It applies to how you treat your children. It applies to how you treat your spouse. It has to do with how you treat your employees or your friends. The question is, are you going to jump to conclusions before the facts come in? I mean, will you be gullible? Will you be easily duped? Will you be cynical? Will you be skeptical about everything that somebody else does? Will you always assume the worst in a person? Will you close your eyes to the obvious? When I was at seminary, I, I did some supply preaching, and I got sent out to this church one day, one Sunday, and I remember using an illustration. And the illustration was this. Uh, it was about a pastor who um, had lost his job. 
And the reason that he had lost his job was because somebody had seen the pastor, saw his car pull up in front of a tavern, in front of a beer joint. They saw him walk in, and they stood there, and they waited, and noticed that the pastor spent several hours in that tavern. And when he came out, he was arm in arm with a man, staggering, and they both fell into the gutter, but finally got up and got in the car and then sped away. By the next day, the pastor was labeled as what? A drunkard and a homosexual. He lost his ministry. No one in that church bothered to realize that a woman had called the pastor, said, my husband is drinking away his paycheck again. Can you do anything about it? To which the pastor said, I'll go down and talk to him. Went to the bar, sat there, finally convinced him to come home. The guy was drunk. He was helping him out. They lost their balance, and he took him home. That was the truth. What I remember about that story was after church, somebody came up to me and said, how did you know that happened in our church? Well, I did not know, and I don't know that that exact thing happened in that church. But guess what? That was an example of not testing everything. It was not an example of what our commandments teach us about what? Put the best construction on everything. Here's the third thing we need to keep our eyes open to, and that is to the presence of God within us. That's why Paul says, be joyful always. Pray always. Give thanks always. I mean, recognize that God is at work in every last single situation. That's, then he says in verse 19, don't put out the Holy Spirit's fire. Some of you remember the old King James Version. I think in the King James it said, quench not the Spirit. Now, do you know how to quench a fire? you know how to go about quenching a fire, putting it up? Well, one way is to not put anything flammable on it. No more sticks, no more branches, no more paper. Another way to quench a fire is to cover it with things inflammable like dirt or water. But now Paul's not talking about how to take care of your campfire or what to do with your fireplace during the winter. He's talking about quenching the fire of the Holy Spirit when you ignore his presence in your life. Or you quench the fire of the Holy Spirit when you smother his presence with things that don't spiritually burn, things like laziness or apathy or condescension or criticism or gossip or selfishness or greed and on and on. These things tend to put out the Spirit's fire in your life. Now, let's be honest. We all struggle with sin. There's not a person here in this room today that is not a sinner. And it always seems, what, that as sinners... We're always dumping things on ourselves that threaten to ruin our spiritual life and to turn our spiritual life into ashes. So how do we keep this spiritual fire burning? Well, I'm going to tell you just a few things. This is, this is some of the things I do to keep the spiritual fire going. And I know it's something a lot of you do. It's what we call the spiritual disciplines. It has to do with daily prayer. I mean, I thank God for picking up a book uh, about a year and a half ago, 
on about daily prayer that takes me through all of the scripture readings all year long and gives me suggestions to think about, but to pray. Daily Bible study. Enjoying and looking forward to coming and worshiping with other people. Fellowshipping with other people. Serving other people. These are the things that really stoke the fire of the Spirit in your life. They keep the fires burning in you. Now, like some of you, I, I've known people who at one time were what we would call on fire for the Lord. They were very enthusiastic in their faith, but then all of a sudden, they no longer came to church, no longer participated in the Christian life at all. And we know people like that, and we say that that's really a sad thing. Now, for virtually all of them, it wasn't a matter of deciding one day when everything was going great, that they would somehow abandon the faith. Instead, it was a matter of them slowly letting the fire go out, slowly closing their eyes to the presence of God in their life. That's why the daily disciplines of the Christian life are so important, because they keep the fires burning. Now, in order for us to be strong in the Christian life, to be like a rock, like this series was called. We need to keep our eyes wide open as we go through life. We need to keep our eyes wide open to the needs of other people around us. We need to keep our eyes wide open to all of the stuff that goes on around us and to test those things. And we need to keep our eyes wide open to the presence of God within us. Well, with this we finish 1 Thessalonians. And the theme that we have encountered time and time again and it's what I hope that you would latch on to in this series, is simply this. Character is developed and revealed in the context of a community. In other words, if you have character, it'll be seen in the way that you treat other people. That's why in every chapter that we've been through in these last five weeks, Paul tells us about how we as Christians can and should and ought to relate to each other. And in order for us to be strong, in order for me to be strong, we need each other because together we are really strong. You and I need to be living examples for one another. Sometimes we need to help one another up. Sometimes we just need to hold one another up. We need to be kind with one another and loving with one another and, and gentle with one another. We need to look out for one another and respect one another and love one another. See, character is developed in the context of a Christian community. That's why God chose to put us in these things that we call churches, these bodies of Christ, communities in which we have a chance to live together, where we have a chance to serve together, and where we have a chance to finish the race that God has placed before us together. This is where we as believers develop character. And this is the place in which we have a chance to walk out and demonstrate that to other people. I'm going to repeat something I said last week. I don't want you to think that you can do any of this on your own. Because you can't. You cannot just say, I'm going to do this all on my own. I don't want you to think either that if you just do these three things that God somehow ought to bless you in a certain way or give you life in heaven. I think most of us understand that. 
The only way we're able to do this is by the presence of God living in our hearts. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 again. For it is by grace we've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God. It has nothing to do with what we do. Otherwise, we'd brag about it. And yet, he has prepared some good works for us to do. I have done two funerals in the last, really, week. Counting a graveside service that I'll do with this Tuesday, it'll be three of them in about a week and a half. At all three of those, I will be sharing essentially the same message. And it's this, that if you want to be in heaven someday, there's only one way to get there. Jesus said, what, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. And guess what? You know, when you've got Jesus in your heart and you are headed to heaven, his promise is also that he leaves behind the Holy Spirit that resident president who enables you to do what? All of this stuff that we have been talking about for the last five weeks. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for calling us to faith. We pray also today for anyone who's not even made that step, who's kind of wondering what would happen if life were to end for them today that you would show them in a very strong way that the way to having a purpose for living and to have a place to go following this life is only through your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would move their hearts by the Spirit. And for those of us who have called you Savior and Lord for many years, we just pray for a renewal of that Spirit. And even as one of the songs that we'll be singing soon says, on what has now been shown, your blessing, Lord, bestow, your power, the power is yours alone to make it sprout and grow. Do thou in grace the harvest raised, and you alone shall have the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.